I'm Alex Mosed, and welcome to Winner Take All, where we talk about how we can make a level playing field with big tech and create a more equitable future for all. So <clears throat> first topic, Kathy Wood, you know, if you remember past couple months, uh, she has ARC, her fund, you know, she was really bullish on Netflix. She was like, oh, we're buying the dip, you know, Netflix tanked, we're buying the dip. Um, everyone was like, oh, wow, uh, Kathy Wood is buying the dip. Well, now it looks like she capitulated. Uh, she's buying, uh, you know, a position in Disney and selling not all, but, but I think a, a meaningful part of her position in Netflix. We were pretty skeptical of, uh, of why she was so bullish on Netflix. And, uh, here is our opinion on why that was the wrong decision. I don't think it ends there. You got people here like Kathy Wood, who is still bullish and buying the dip. Horrible idea. Horrible idea. That growth isn't going to come back. There's no magic switch that Netflix can just push at this point. The, actually, the competition is only going to heat up on Netflix. Disney at almost 100 million subscribers. HBO Max, over 40 million subscribers. Peacock from Comcast, over 30 million subscribers. Okay, you get the idea. When was this? This video was... Oh, wow. This was a month ago. Man, she changed her tune pretty quickly. We called it wrong decision by Kathy. Glad she figured it out. Uh, just took her a few weeks. So just a reminder, you can text us. Eventually, we will all be deplatformed. But the Great Awakening is happening. People are waking up every day. We will fight back against the big tech monopolies and win. Text us to stay in touch, 203-646-5159. That's Kathy Wood and Netflix falling out of grace. We've been calling it for over two years. It's a linear business model. You've heard all the reasons. Another example of linear business model, yeah, you know, troubles is what's going on with AT&T. They're now old CEO Randall Stevenson spent over $120 billion on just a couple acquisitions, DirecTV, which they already have started to exit out of, and Time Warner. What's happened there is uh, now, you know, Randall ascended up. Um, they had had or have still have an activist investor saying this doesn't make sense. Uh, you know, the content play, it's a linear content play. Time Warner is like the the plagued um, stepchild of any M&A deal, right? Think about AOL Time Warner 20 years ago. Horrible deal. AT&T Time Warner. Horrible deal. I mean, that one is so obviously a horrible deal. We probably didn't even cover it as much as Netflix versus, you know, uh, um, being inflated because that one's a little bit harder to see. The AT&T Time Warner being a horrible deal is just so blatantly obvious. And finally, now... Because Randall isn't there and, and they have promoted um, you know, a new CEO into the role, there's kind of less optics issues and ego. Yeah, there's a lot of ego at these kinds of decisions, gang. So now he can exit stage left and the new CEO can kind of unbundle all the problems that he created. 
You know, this group, the information, they usually get things wrong, but on this one, they're actually right. That will go down in history, in the history of corporate America as among the most ill-conceived pair of acquisitions ever. Uh, I love this line. And don't listen to any AT&T executives who claim the industry changed faster than they expected. Evidence was abundant six years ago that cord cutting was eroding both satellite TV and entertainment. I know Mike White, former CEO of DirecTV. He's a smart guy. He knew what was coming. And, uh, oof, I mean, he navigated that situation brilliantly, um, selling at an all-time high, all-time premium to AT&T when everyone else was saying, what's going on? DirecTV, how are they going to hold on to all these subscribers? Like, why would you pay a premium for DirecTV? But Randall Stevenson and all of his, uh, you know, and all of his, uh, I'm sure, high-paid consultants and um, his quieted executive C-suite and board members, where were they to, to squash this, right? I mean, when you think about a functioning board and executive team, they are there to have those hard conversations and say, hey, I don't think this thing looks good. Like, what are we going to do about cord cutting? Simple question not answered. No one really drove that home. They made not one, but two blundered acquisitions. These are linear plays in a platform world. Now you see this all the time. You see linear consolidation as a mechanism to try to combat coming platform disruption, right? The problem with content is that it's so fragmented in the sense that, you know, it's, it's a taboo world, a taboo word in the media industry. When you talk to traditional media executives, the words UGC, user-generated content, it's a taboo word. You mention UGC inside of any of the, there's basically five big media companies and there's basically five people that make all the decisions for the media as we know it, right? It's a super consolidated landscape only getting more and more consolidated now at the Time Warner Discovery deal. But it's a super consolidated landscape. The decision-making power is in a handful of, of, of people's hands. And the whole idea of doing user-generated content gets struck down so fast because it's new and it's different and they don't want to hurt their brand and they don't want to do this and they don't want to do that. But that is the challenge when consolidation could be a viable mechanism to kick the can down the road, what comes with supply side platform disruption, right? It could buy you some time. But if you continue to ignore the elephant in the room, which is user-generated content, and the fact that content actually is super fragmented because now anyone can be a content creator, that's the real mindset shift here. Um, the entire kind of world of content has been turned on its head, but these traditional media companies have not embraced user-generated content, and it's 2021. It doesn't make any sense, but no, they still trudge ahead, Netflix included. Netflix is not trying to embrace user-generated content, so it is very much so Older executives that don't want to embrace the new way of that content is being created and delivered, and that is content platforms. They still do have a lot of power because they have done so much consolidation, 
But until they are willing to embrace a hybrid approach where you have premium high-end content that you make in the traditional way, you control it, you script it, high production quality content, and you figure out how to pair that with user-generated content. That is the crossing of the chasm, which none of these giants have, have wanted to do, have really tried to do in earnest. And eventually, the platform competitors, the content platforms, will figure that out. And they actually are figuring it out, right? Look at Amazon with Twitch, um, which is all user-generated content. And then they got Prime Video, which just turned 10 years old uh, uh, this year. You got YouTube, which has had different spurts at like YouTube um, Red, maybe they called it YouTube Premium. Um, and then they shuttered that. But, you know, uh, now you see them, you see Amazon bidding on uh, premium content uh, sports rights, like with the NFL. I think Amazon secured those rights. So eventually you will see Twitter for some time flirted with the NFL streaming rights. Eventually you will see the content platform figure out how to cross the chasm into the premium stuff. And when that happens, oh boy, fireworks. And to me, they keep on, they being the platform, content platforms, they keep on trying. Now, doesn't mean they're figuring it out correctly. Some, you know, the, some fail, some get, you know, some get Amazon Prime Video. I mean, there's lots of kind of stops and starts here, but at least they're trying. The linear people, the, the traditional media conglomerates, they're not even trying. And that will be how this, uh, how this script ends uh, before it even started, unless they start to try. You got to try and embrace the new world and figure out how do you merge them together. Old world is linear, premium, high-end content. New world is user-generated content. How do these things come together? And by the way, there's lots of different content formats. There's lots of different content models and interaction models, right? There's, there could be multiple permutations of this across the spectrum of audience and, and, and brand and a whole slew of things. You know, looking at um, Patreon, right, where they have um, a marketplace to help individual creators. Well, I think 40% of their audience are creators and then other ones are, you know, other kinds of hobbyists and stuff. But um, you know, there's so many ways that you could look to try. It could be Cameo, um, which is, you know, all around helping you get like celebrities uh, uh, to do little videos or messages for you. There's a whole bunch of ways that you could look to say, how can a platform model and a traditional content model overlap with one another? The Probably the best example or the only example we've seen so far would be Food Network partnering with Amazon. And again, you know, when you partner with a tech monopoly like Amazon, you know, your, your upside is muted. Like I think they have some kind of collaboration they, they announced a year ago around content and they're in, around e-commerce uh, in the Food Network app. So there's kind of a two-way synergy that they're trying to get at there. That's kind of it. And then you've got Univision giving away the keys to the kingdom to Google. Horrible decision. The content industry, the media industry is struggling. Um, actually, I'll give one other example, which is Condé Nast holding company. I think it's called Advanced Publications buying Reddit like 15 years ago, whatever it is, for 
I think less than $50 million. They screwed it up for a while and then they spun it out, gave it more autonomy, and then it was able to grow again. But <clears throat> we've covered that on the show. That is a great example. But, you know, funny thing there is Condé Nast and Reddit, you know, there's actually very little linkage between the two that kind of just purely like a holding company with advance that owns these things. Um, and, you know, the, it's ultimately uh, you know, the, the uh, Newhouse family, which owns all of the stuff. But um, there are ways to do this. There's not many people trying. So we'll see. We'll see more so probably with the disruptors due to the incumbents, but I wish it was the other way around. So that's some linear stuff. This one's funny. This one, this one gave me a chuckle. Um, so the news is ByteDance investors say the CEO changed his reaction to Beijing's tech crackdown. Zhang Yiming is stepping down as CEO of the world's most valuable privately held company. It was an unfortunate but necessary measure to basically placate the Chinese regulators. Why is this funny? Well, it's actually hilarious because, should I just play? I'll just play, I'll just play the video. Asked this week in an interview, like if Xi Jinping asked you to look into something and give him some data, what would you say? And he said, no, I wouldn't do that. I would tell Xi Jinping no. And as uh, Benedict Evans, a VC, uh, and Dreesen Horowitz mentioned this in his newsletter, and he said it's unfortunate because everyone knows that's a lie. <laughs> yeah, and your family will go to right. jail. Like you would, you would stop operating as a company and go to jail. Right. So this was from um, November of 2019. Nick Johnson, co-author, um, talking about the same guy, Zhang Yiming, and he was saying. Oh, well, if, you know, if the government, if President Xi asked me for this information, I would not give it to them. And that's what we were joking about in November of 2019, that, well, that's completely ridiculous. And this guy is just, I don't even know if he really said it. You can't believe anything coming out of China. But whatever it is, that was the quote attributed to him. And it's just obviously it was laughable 18 months ago. And boom, proof is in the pudding. The guy's exiting the company to skirt uh, scrutiny by the Chinese regulators. But I thought he was going to stand up to the Chinese regulators and tell them that he wasn't going to give them any of the data of the U.S. users that were, you know, using his platform. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Saying how none of that is true. So that's why TikTok is pure with just a little bit of sarcasm. Um, okay. Next one is Epic does have a chance. You've probably seen it in the news that Epic is suing Apple. Phil Schiller uh, testified in the court case um, in Epic versus Apple for six hours. And uh, basically the takeaway is that Phil Schiller said that no one knows how profitable the App Store is. They have no idea. They don't even talk about it. No one even no one even knows how profitable the app store is or, or if it even is profitable. It's laughable. It's, I don't know what's more laughable. Phil Schiller lying through his teeth um, or Zhang Yiming saying that he wouldn't give the data to President Xi. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. That's a tough one. I don't know. What do you, what do you guys think? Uh, 
which one is more ridiculous? Which one is a more ridiculous statement? Zhang Yiming saying, President Xi, I'm not going to give you these people's data. Or Phil Schiller saying, no one in Apple knows if the app store is even profitable, let alone how profitable. That's the world we live in. He perjured himself. This guy's a liar. Now, will they be able to prove it in the courts and this and that? Phil Schiller's a liar. He committed perjury. Someone's got to start enforcing this stuff, right? You're testifying in a court of law that you don't know how profitable this thing is. It's ridiculous. What they should do, and, and, and this is now turning into Epic's favor, but Apple completely misplayed this, right? Like claiming ignorance as their defense. It's a horrible excuse. It's a laughable excuse. That's why now everyone in the media has picked up this story because it's ridiculous. And instead, you know, a better defense would have been to get out in front of it and, and say that the profitability or what Epic is trying to claim is that, you know, the app store is taking advantage of developers, which it does, right? But the interesting thing is that Apple isn't really vertically integrated and competing against Epic. You know, that's really where, I mean, what we talk about all the time on the show, right? When platforms hit monopoly scale, who do they take advantage of? It's not the consumer, it's the producer, it's the suppliers, right? In this instance, it's app developers. So where they really get into trouble is when the platform vertically integrates and is now favoring its own products versus third-party producers or suppliers, right? So that's Amazon Basics versus third-party sellers on Amazon. Or it's the other congressional hearing where you had Tile and Spotify saying, you know, that Apple was favoring its own Apple Music and then Apple literally launched a Tile competitor the day before the congressional hearing. There's something in the water over there. Um, like that, to me, is, is, is a Loctite case. Um, that is what Microsoft got in trouble for in the late 90s, right? It just so happened that it was, it was the Department of Justice and it was the federal government suing Microsoft um, versus, um, you know, really Epic carrying the torch here. So that's the other really interesting bit about this is that it's not, you know, if you look at this title, it's not, you know, U.S. government versus Apple. It's Epic versus Apple. So it's very hard to go and sue a tech monopoly. I mean, it takes a lot of money and a lot of time. It's very distracting. You, know, you need to have all your executives working on this. It's really a, really a big deal to go and do this. Fortunately, Epic has a pretty good war chest and you know, they can take this on. You know, so to put it in perspective, Epic has raised over $4 billion. Um, they raised a billion dollars just in April. So last month of 2021 at a $28.7 billion valuation. In the past three years, since 2018, they have raised um, basically, you know, $4 billion of, of the $4.36 billion that they've raised. They've raised a lot of money just in the past few years. Funny enough, some of that money is 10 cent money. 
we have had the CEO of Epic has said, you know, Tencent has no control. We're not beholden to the Chinese. You know, take that for what it's worth. The thing that Epic really got grumpy about is that Epic wants interoperability across the different platforms, right? So they want to let you play, um, you know, on your PlayStation with Xbox people, on your iPhone with console people, Android people. And that's kind of been the, the hallmark of these development platforms is that they keep you locked in to only play with other friends that have the same device. And so Epic through Fortnite was really the first one that pierced that veil. And as a part of this lawsuit, a lot of the emails that Epic had with Sony included and other executives about letting them agree to uh, have Fortnite be cross-console, cross-platform in that sense. And, and what could Epic do? All these kinds of favors that were trying to be traded and bartered um, for how Epic and Fortnite could get what it wanted, interoperability, and you know, provide other value or exclusives to the different um, you know, uh, uh, platform developers, right? So that's really interesting. I think that's one of the biggies that <clears throat> really ticked off Epic so much was how they have this lock-in, as well as around the <clears throat> in-app purchases and the money. Um, and that's where this argument comes around the profitability. So, I mean, to me, this is a big win for Epic just because I think Apple played this so poorly and made themselves look like fools. And everyone knows they're not fools. They're very smart people. They know this information. So to me, the guy perjured himself, made him look like a fool. The press is running with it, rightly so. It's ridiculous. Uh, Apple knows that the App Store is wildly profitable. They've actually talked about how its margins are ultra high in the past and other earnings because we've tracked that. So it's just uh, really unfortunate to see. Um, even though I actually don't think Epic has the best case from, from, a, from a victim standpoint, right, um, against Apple. But hopefully they, they make some progress here because the tech monopolies are too strong. They have crossed the line multiple times. There, there's a power vacuum that is slowly being chipped away at, and we are all a part of that. Even if we don't have a bunch of money, four plus billion dollars to go sue Apple, we and everyone, small little ways throughout our daily lives, can figure out ways to support the alternative, the up and coming tech companies, and slowly chip away at the uh, at the uh, tech platform monopoly power. And we're all waking up. You're not alone. Everyone watching this show and elsewhere is understanding the transgressions by the tech monopolies. And this playing field will be leveled. Last topic. On leveling the playing field. So I had Andrew Wilkinson on the show. He was our last uh, episode guest interview. Founded a bunch of companies. Now big investor and, you know, invests and owns, kind of has a holding company that owns a bunch of uh tech companies that that are deliberately not trying to compete against tech monopolies right so you know what's a what's a uh, an industry that has a, a billion dollar total addressable market that's off the radar of a tech monopoly that you know you can still have a high growth business that's profitable but you're not going to come under the thumb of a tech monopoly just cuz it's too small of a market for the tech monopoly to care about right so he's done a very good job 
finding a lot of these businesses. Great interview. And towards the end of the interview, we start to talk about his thoughts around, um, <clears throat> you know, how, how blockchain and, you know, altcoins and kind of the DeFi, decentralized finance culture and protocols could help, again, what? Level the playing field against big tech monopolies. It was really great. Maybe last 20 minutes of the conversation. Uh, highly suggest you go listen to it. He was only on audio. So if you want a good little audio podcast portion to listen to, highly recommend it. What's interesting, though, is that just like literally the day after that interview, two days after that interview, we got Fred Wilson here, uh, founder of Union Square Ventures. Uh, one of Fred's partners blurbed our book. So basically, he, what, what he's saying in this is the rise of decentralized media. And he highlights BitClout, which Andrew also highlighted on the show. And he started to talk about BitClout as an example of the broader opportunity that he was talking about. So basically, what he was talking about was to say, hey, how could you take these social media and content platform models and roll them over onto um, the blockchain and interweave that proprietary coin, that coin specific to the platform, into the platform's functions. And so what that means is if the early users and the early adopters are inherently getting and receiving and having a lot of these coins as the platform grows up and matures then um those early users that have a lot of the coins would share in the platform's rise to you know uh value creation and is that an attractive monetary subsidy to help chip away at the dominant network effects that large tech monopoly content platforms have. And so we talked more in depth about that, but now you've got Fred Wilson, literally just a couple days later, talking about the same dynamic. He mirrored his blog onto Mirror, a decentralized blogging platform. And yesterday he claimed uh, Fred Wilson on BitClout with this tweet. Around that same time, he says, I saw this post on BitCloud. Today, we take the decentralization of social media further than any other project in the past. Today, BitCloud does to social media what Bitcoin is doing to the traditional finance system. Today, 100% of the BitCloud code goes public, and then they link to it. When we say 100% of the BitCloud code is now public, we mean 100%. Uh, as of today, all of the code powering BitCloud is now accessible to any developer in the world. Um, what does this mean? It means fundamentally that no company or CEO can ever get in between a creator and their followers. Because all of the data and code are now completely undeniably open. And this was the fatal flaw. We had the library uh, founder and CEO on the show. Library. Um, does something similar as a YouTube competitor, whereas BitCloud is more of a Twitter competitor. Library does some publishing, what Bitcoin did to money. And so you can take the library code, it's all open source, 
and then you can go and create your own version of YouTube. They've done that with Odyssey, but it's all very similar, right? Um, BitClout is saying, here's all of our code. Library is saying, here's all of our code. And then they've got Odyssey. BitClout has kind of packaged it a little bit more together. But all of this show, winner take all, is on Odyssey. Um, and I will be joining BitClout uh, right after this. I have not been using Twitter. Why do I not use Twitter? Because their level of, even though they're not a tech monopoly, but Twitter and the tech monopolies alike have transgressed. They have harmed, irreparably harmed, what it means to be a platform business. And they have done that in the Orwellian tactics that they have wielded to censor their producers. And it's not okay. They have opened Pandora's box and they can never close it. And no matter what they try and do and say, we must go elsewhere. Now, yes, we still publish on YouTube. But we do that with an effort to move people off of YouTube onto Odyssey, onto our texting line. What's our texting line, you may ask? Oh, 203-646-5159. Um, onto other alternative content platforms like BitClout for Twitter, Gab we've talked about um, also. And, you know, I think, you know, yeah, maybe, maybe Gab will. I wonder if Gab open sources their code. Um, that would be interesting. And you know, that would kind of be the continuation of this trend. But yeah, you got Odyssey for the YouTube competitor. You got um, BitClout here uh, on the... Uh, on the Twitter competitor. So it's happening. And, 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 and so this is what I also started to talk about with Andrew, but we didn't, we didn't fully close it out, was what happened to library, though, is now the SEC has been going after library for its altcoin. So, you know, you're now seeing government use what Andrew and Fred Wilson are saying, um, I think Fred Wilson is more so coming at from an openness standpoint and from a, you know, you can't be censored standpoint, you can't be erased standpoint. Um, Andrew is coming from it from a monetary subsidy standpoint as a way to level the playing field. But a lot of people are talking about this. A lot of smart people, a lot of really heralded uh, investors are talking about this. The awakening is happening. People are seeing the overstepping that the tech monopolies have done, continue to do. They're fighting it by either creating alternative companies, suing them, and basically the government does nothing but twiddle their thumbs and actually hurt the progress uh, of, of making this a more level playing field. But we will win. We will fight back a big, against big tech and we will win. Mark my words. Okay, so last topic is actually... Um, from Paul Graham here, which is don't talk to Corp Dev. This is actually an interesting article from six years ago where he basically says, you know, Corp Dev, um, it's usually a mistake to talk to Corp Dev unless A, you want to sell your company right now and B, you're sufficiently likely to get an offer at an acceptable price. In practice, that means startups should only talk to Corp Dev when they're doing really well or really badly. Um, basically says Corp Dev is going to waste a bunch of your time they're going to promise a bunch of things to you, and um, it's a distraction. 
Distractions are the thing you can least afford in a startup. Conversations with corp dev are the worst sort of distraction because as well as consuming your attention, they undermine your morale. Actually, this article is why Applico is creating value. Right? Uh, a few episodes ago, we talked about the relationship and partnership that we have with Laz, the second largest parking operator in the country. Um, you're about to see more news come out around some acquisitions our clients have been making, around uh, investments that our clients have been making. And what Applico is doing is we're helping. What is Applico's role in helping to level the playing field against big tech? We're helping the large traditional enterprises do deals with tech startups, right? And we have, I think you got big tech over here putting their thumb down on the incumbents and putting their thumb down on the up and coming tech companies. How can these two groups work more closely with one another, right? The enemy of my enemy is my friend. And these are both enemies of tech monopolies. And, but the problem is how do they work together? And this is Paul Graham's article, which says they're actually all a waste of time if you're a startup trying to talk to a large enterprise. And that is actually a lot of what Applico does is we're that bridge to strike partnerships, right? It's a partnership. It doesn't have to be an acquisition. It doesn't have to be an investment. But what startups need more than capital is scale. You want to know what these large enterprises have a lot of? Scale. And they got some capital too. And so the question is, how can that tech company, that up and coming tech company, bring value to the enterprise? The answer is there's a lot of ways. And how can the enterprise bring value to the startup? And also the answer is there's a lot of ways. The key is figuring out how to thread that needle, how to not waste the time of the startup because they're busy, and how to provide value to these enterprises. Because these enterprises can't make the sort of investments in technology. They can't subsidize the sort of value from a financial standpoint uh, for product development that these tech companies can because they've got VC money. And VC money is more than happy to invest in these kinds of things. They have very different cap capitalization structures that allow them to invest in innovation and disruption very differently. But there is a way that they can work much more closely together. And that starts with strategic partnerships. And that's why you know, over half of the people in Applico are tech entrepreneurs and operators. So we know how to navigate the big enterprise. We know how to sort through a bunch of stuff that startups don't want to and don't need to sort through, don't have time to sort through. And we know how to bring golden little nuggets to startups and say, hey, would this be of interest? Because we've already done a lot of the work with the enterprise to figure out what could move the needle for them and what they need to do to get their own house in order so that they could really partner successfully. And we'll handle all that stuff. We'll kind of extract and abstract a lot of that work and just madness away from you, which is really what, a lot of what Paul Graham's article is about here. But, you know, let's talk about how you could add value startup. Let's talk about how you could accelerate what the enterprise is trying to do and how they could also help you too. That's the kind of conversations we're having with startup founders and that's the kind of deals that you're going to see. You've seen some about. You're going to see more and more news about. Um, where Applico Capital comes into all of this is to say, you know, the enterprise, the startup is creating value for the enterprise. But by the nature of this partnership going through, the enterprise is creating a lot of value for the startup, right? By bringing scale to the startup and credibility and brand and a whole bunch of other things. So... Why wouldn't we want to invest in that startup? If we, if we really believe in the startup and think they can bring value to the enterprise, 
Why wouldn't we want to put some money into the startup also? And that's what Applico Capital is doing. Um, either leading that round if the enterprise is too capital constrained and just can't justify it to their shareholders, or co-investing alongside the enterprise if they can invest or take a minority position or or possibly do an acquisition. But you know, it's mostly around minority taking minority investment stakes. So we want to put our money where our mouth is, just like our clients want to be able to share in the upside that they're bringing to the startup when possible and when appropriate. And that's the beauty, right? It's bi-directional synergies. Uh, you're accelerating everyone's timeline to get to where they want to be. You're reducing the downside and the risk that the enterprise has to take on these digital and disruptive innovation initiatives. And that's the model. And more to come on that. Thank you very much for listening to me. That's it for us today on Winner Take All. I will talk to you soon.